Productions. This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Well, I'm, I'm super excited to uh, welcome our next uh, guest to the podcast. It's uh, Dr. James Dahlman. He's a biomedical engineer who works at the intersection of nanotechnology, molecular biology, and genomics. James is an associate professor at Georgia Institute of Technology and Emory School of Medicine and the director of the Lab for Precision Therapies. James's lab designs drug delivery vehicles that target RNA and other nucleic acids to cells in the body and uses DNA barcodes to screen thousands of nanoparticles in vivo. He has applied his technology to treat diseases such as heart disease, cancer, inflammation, and pulmonary hypertension. He's also developed new tools for gene editing using CRISPR-Cas9 technology. James has received numerous awards for his research, including the McCamish Foundation Early Career Professorship. His work has been translated via Guide Therapeutics, which was an exciting spin out from Georgia Tech and acquired by Beam Therapeutics uh, fairly recently. James is also a passionate educator and a mentor who loves to share his enthusiasm for science with students and the public. So James, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Thanks to you. Thank you for having me. Well, I, you know, if we could maybe just set the context uh, for today's discussion, um, if you wouldn't mind doing just a, a level set around um, ex, ex, expounding on the description of, you know, where you're spending your time and where your research aims are right now. And as we go through the uh, course of the discussion, I'll go back in time and kind of ultimately learn what brought you here, you know, what, what got you to this point in time. And, and, then, and then at the end, we'll look at what's next. So if you could just kind of start with uh, present day, what are you focused on now and um, share with our audience um, what, what some of those activities are? Yeah, great. So, you know, where are we? So my lab for a long time um, has been working on what we call non-liver RNA delivery. Every word in that sentence is important. So many of your listeners might be familiar with, um, you know, these mRNA vaccines because of the pandemic and therefore familiar with the impact that these RNA medicines can have on, on society and on our health. Um, in addition to those RNA vaccines, there are other RNA drugs that people are less familiar with. Those other RNA medicines tend to tackle genetic disease. So, you know, we're talking about diseases that you might inherit from mom and dad that can, that can cause real problems. And there are a number of RNA therapies that are actually borderline cured, and I use that word very carefully, borderline cured by RNA therapies. Um, the challenge is that all of those RNA therapies are for liver diseases. So if you have a genetic disease that is in your liver right now, there's a good chance that somebody's working on a treatment for it using RNA. But if you have an RNA, or excuse me, if you have a disease uh, in any other organ, let's say you have cystic fibrosis, which is in several organs, but we think about the lungs, uh, or let's say you have sickle cell, uh, which is uh, related to uh, a hematopoietic stem cell inside your bone marrow or whatever, whatever. 
any other organ, you're kind of you're kind of stuck. Um, we don't have the ability to give you an RNA therapy for a disease outside of the liver. And that is because we can't deliver the RNAs to those tissues. So think about it this way. If you have an RNA drug that uh, you want to use to treat cystic fibrosis, uh, it won't do you a lot of good unless you can get that RNA drug to the lungs where it can get into the diseased cells. So my lab for a long time, like I said, is working on non-liver RNA delivery. How do we get these RNA drugs to any organ uh, outside the liver? And we've been doing this both academically as well as translationally uh, via guide, uh, which you mentioned a moment ago. And how do you do that? Talk a little bit more about the delivery, just the science of, of delivery. I think you clearly articulated um, the limitation you know, of going beyond the liver, but what are some of the techniques that you're able to use um, you know, some of the terms that, you know, I, I threw around there at the beginning, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 yeah. and, and you look at, uh, you know, nanotechnology and, 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 and that type of um, maybe material science approach. And anything you could kind of enlighten the listeners on what it means to deliver and then how you go about figuring out how you would deliver RNA. Yeah. So it's actually really hard to get something to work at low, i.e. safe doses, uh, outside the liver. And so the challenge that my field has is my lab and other scientists in my field can make any type of delivery vehicle that we want. So I can stick the RNA inside any little bit of nanotechnology that I want. The nanotechnology serves as sort of a, a carrier like a Trojan horse for that RNA. So we can design, you can think of it this way, we can design any kind of Trojan horse that you want. We can design a big horse or a small horse or one that has a certain charge on it or whatever. So making the delivery systems is no problem. We can literally make thousands of them. The challenge is that we can't test them in a meaningful way. So let me walk you through an example from my own experience. When I was a graduate student, I was lucky enough to work in a really top lab. And it had a lot of resources and all this stuff. Um, and we were working on non-liver delivery. In fact, I've been doing that my entire life. And uh, we said, okay, well, we want something to work in the lungs. That was our goal. And they said, okay, well, I can make whatever we want, but there's no real way to test it. So, so what I did was I made 2,500 different pieces of nanotechnology, 2,500. And I threw them all onto some like lung, you know, sort of different cell types in a plastic dish. And I said, okay, well, I can't sort of run all of these 2,500 variants, you know, in animal experiments. I can't run a 10,000 mouse experiment, both because it's not practical and it's not ethical. So I'm gonna just sort of use this plastic dish as a proxy. Uh, and I'm gonna go from 2,500 candidates down to three, literally throw away 2,497 of them. And then you take the top three candidates and you, and you put it into a living, breathing animal, in this case a mouse, and you hope that it goes to the lungs. And you quickly realize that that proxy, that plastic dish, doesn't in any way, shape, or form predict how it's gonna work in a living, breathing animal, in a mouse, or in you, or in me. 
And so we can make whatever we want, but we can't run the right assay, which becomes a huge problem. So let's pretend that you can make 2,500 different things. That means that you can either do a 10,000 mouse experiment, which again is not ethical, not practical, or you can figure out a way to test a bunch of different um, technologies all in one animal. Mathematically, those are the only two solutions. You can either do a lot of mice or you can do a lot of compounds in one mouse. And so what my lab is doing and what we did in Guide and sort of what we're known for is this idea of barcoding nanoparticles. And all that means is nanoparticle one uh, gets sort of a tag, a DNA barcode that acts as a tag for it. It says, okay, this is nanoparticle one. And then nanoparticle two gets a different DNA tag, DNA barcode number two, and so on and so forth. So nanoparticle 100 would get DNA barcode or tag 100. You can then mix those all together, tags one through 100 or one through 200 or whatever, and administer them to one animal, and then use DNA sequencing, so think about 23andMe, like those types of machines, um, to basically read out all the DNA at once and say, oh man, how much DNA got in? Oh boy, I see a lot of DNA barcode number 34. Hmm. That must mean that nanoparticle 34 is good at going to the lungs. I see. And so by tagging each particle with this yeah. individual barcode, you can run hundreds of experiments at once, sometimes thousands of experiments at once, thereby dramatically accelerating the rate at which you can find particles for next generation therapies, particles that go to the lungs or go to the bone marrow or go to the spleen or go to the heart or whatever. And that's been what we've been, that's what we've been doing for the last several years, basically accelerating uh, the discovery process of, of, of next generation RNA therapies by performing thousands of experiments at a time. Does, I hope that makes sense. No, it does. It's crazy though to imagine. And does it get pretty, I mean, is it chaotic trying to track, you know, you know, all of those, you know, delivery vehicles? Um, I'm just thinking about, you know, the readout that, that comes with that. Um, and I can definitely, you know, follow the illustration that you're providing and imagine, you know, seeing accumulation in a, in a certain, you know, part of the body or whatever. But um, it just seems like chaotic. How, how do you track yeah. all that stuff? So I, I love the fact, so I agree with you. When, when you think about it, it, it seems chaotic. I think that's a great word for it. Um, but the beautiful thing is it, it turns out to be as unchaotic as you could imagine. Hmm. Because the way that we're uh, actually reading the stuff out, this 23andMe type process, is the most sensitive process, I think, in the history of human civilization. <laughs> I don't, I, you know, maybe there's some sort of like physical something, something I'm not thinking of, but... The ability to read out DNA, even very, very, very small amounts of it, is is extremely good. Okay. So uh, another way to think about this is like you know, some of your listeners might be familiar, um, you know, with uh, some other scientific stuff. Like you know, people have sequenced DNA from like Neanderthals, and they've sequenced DNA from like woolly mammoths, and they sequenced. Think about that stuff. That DNA has been sitting around. Sure. For tens of thousands of years yeah. and that means there's not a ton of it left but even with that little 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 tiny like fragment of a fragment of a fragment of a woolly mammoth dna mm -hmm. you can still read it out so yeah. now put yourselves in our shoes 
you know, instead of doing the experiment on Monday and then waiting 20,000 years to read it out, <laughs> you're doing your experiment on Monday and reading it out on Tuesday, which means that we can get away with like a lot of stuff at once. I, I have, so DNA is like hyper, hyper sensitive. Yeah. Hyper yeah. Sensitive. No, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, and I mean, taking it one step further, um, you know, you came up with that um, approach and now you've, it's, it's a breakthrough in that sense that you can now you know, identify the right delivery vehicle to deliver the RNA to places outside the liver. Um, where did that take you? And maybe you could weave in a little bit around some of that academic uh, work and the results that you were achieving there with, with uh, you know, the years leading up to that. And then kind of what led to the formation of guide and maybe why did you decide to move in that direction around the company side of things outside of the academic environment? Yeah. So we were very fortunate to have, um, I haven't been a professor that long. So I started my lab in 2016 and I was very fortunate to have, um, my first two graduate students were just excellent. One, uh, was named Corey Sago. And the other one was named Kalina Pavnoska. And they joined an empty lab and worked their butts off to really help me um, sort of put together this vision of running all these experiments at once. And then they built a very solid foundation that future students kind of built along with them. And so we were very lucky in the sense that we got off to a fast start academically. Um, through Corey's work and Kalina's work and work and others, uh, work by others in the, the lab, especially Melissa Lokugamage and others, we, were, we got the technology to, to work. And then suddenly we were sitting in a position where, to my knowledge, we were kind of the only academic lab around at that time that could do these very high throughput experiments. And so we were able to publish and publish and publish because, you know, we'd write a paper saying, hey, we studied 100 particles in an animal. And using the one by one by one analysis um, in the past, sort of, you know, doing one animal at a time, mm -hmm. that, that's like years of work. And we were just able to do it on a Monday. Mm -hmm. So we were able to get the papers out and, and sort of provide a pretty solid foundation for the barcoding. I think to date we have pub we've published a lot of barcoding papers the last few years. So that nice solid academic foundation. This led to um, a few awards, one of which was the MIT Tech Review TR35. And it's a bit silly, but um, you know every year the Tech Review uh, magazine, the 35 uh, brightest whatever under 35, they, they put all those people in the mag in the physical magazine, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was one of those people. Yeah. And a venture capitalist called me and he was like, hey, I've been reading this magazine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, your thing sounds kind of cool. Um, you know, have you thought about starting a company? And uh, I lied. I was like, yeah, absolutely. I have like <laughs> thought through real carefully, you know, and, um, you know, and so and so that started a conversation with that particular investor. And yeah. and that led um, to the formation of Guide which basically commercialized, and I would say really professionalized that academic workflow, right? Because there's certain things that you can do in a private company, even an early stage one, that you just can't do academically. It's just faster, it's more professional, you can hire mm -hmm. different types of people. You can really sort of put your foot on the gas, um, translationally, in a biotech. So Guide 
um, did its first experiment in sort of mid-2019. It was based here in Atlanta and then later in Tucker, Georgia. Uh, and then we were acquired very quickly. We were acquired, the deal closed in February of 2021. So less than two years after we kind of, you know, ran our first experiments, basically, we were kind of bought. And I think that that quick acquisition timeline um, was in large part because we had a great team mm -hmm. over at Guide. Mm -hmm. And also uh, because uh, Corey, who left my lab to uh, start Guide and um, was the CTO of Guide, mm -hmm. um, worked really, really hard to, like I said, professionalize this stuff. So you basically took a process that accelerated the discovery of different nanotechnology drug delivery systems. Mm -hmm. It was already doing pretty well in the lab. Corey was then able to take it, professionalize it, mm -hmm. like really, really put his foot on the gas, and then it, it turned into a very quick, good outcome. So um, kind of a crazy experience, I have to admit, but um, but everybody there worked really, really hard, and um, you know they, they did a great job turning that into like a, a real bona fide thing. Yeah. And all, that's an amazing story. And I just cracking up, just uh, even watching your facial expressions, you know, talking about the magazine and the venture capitalist calls you and yeah. next thing you know, you got money and a couple years yeah. later you're acquired. Isn't, doesn't it always go that way? Is It's, uh, yeah, it's very straightforward, right. right? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. You get, you get nominated for this like random stupid list and then suddenly, and then three the years later rings. or whatever, like you sell a company. That's right. No, that's great. No, that that's really cool to hear that. And I, I'm particularly intrigued to hear, you know, about Corey and his experience too, because in some ways that that playbook could be repeated over and over again. I and mean, we've definitely seen it, you know, across our ecosystem, you know, oftentimes that, you know, the faculty member, you know, working with their graduate student, you know, that graduate student can sometimes be that first CTO to get things yep. off the ground and creating the right environment, the right conditions and having the right mentor like you to kind of support that um, is a really important factor for kind of allowing that to, to happen. Your experience there, are there any notable things that maybe you learned through that process? And is it something that by doing that the first time, is it something you would want to do again? Or is it something that, you know, you'd say, um, had my experience there and, you know, it's not, not interesting to me. Just curious. Yeah, so the second part of the question, we're definitely going to do it again. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to be sort of exposed to the translational biotech side now, um, I guess for a few years, and I really enjoy it. It allows me to stretch my brain in different ways. So I kind of joke, not joking, but not really joking, say that when academia gets too burdensome or cumbersome and I get some email because some random form wasn't filled out the right way. And therefore we have to delay an experiment for a month. And I want to like, you know, lose my mind over this. Then I can go over to the biotech side and, you know, there things are going and everything is fast and new and all this. And then when the biotech side gets a little too flashy for me or gets a little too cool for me, because you have to remember, I'm not a particularly cool guy. So when it gets a little too cool for me, <laughs> then I like to go back to my people on the academic side. So I get to sort of stretch different parts of my brain. And honestly, in that, in that sense, it really allows me to enjoy both sides because I'm never stuck in a box. And I feel very, very, very fortunate to be in that position because it just makes kind of both sides more fun, which I think is important. Um, and, you know, I, I can't even begin to talk about the lessons. I, I can tell you that, um, goodness, I can tell you that what I, you know, when we do, um, you know, when we're, when we're discussing future companies that will spin out of my lab, 
um, you know, I, I think I do it very differently, not because I think we screwed it up a guide, but because you just learn mm -hmm. through your first process, you learn that, you know, oh, okay, well, um, you know, I'm, I'm presenting this the wrong way or I'm talking to the wrong people or, um, you know, if I'm talking to a pharma, why on earth am I talking to this person and not that person? So there's all these sort of like subtle things that, uh, you know, I guess in theory, I could have read them in some book somewhere, but I'm more of an experienced learner and got to live it. You got to live it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. you really got to live it. And mm -hmm. having lived one, I think that two will be different. And I'm sure that when I'm done with two, then I'll be like, oh my goodness, I really botched that. And three will be better hopefully and so on. So I think it really is a series of experiences. Mm -hmm. The one thing I'd say, and I always I joke with my wife about this a lot. I worked uh, in the lab of a, a professor named Bob Langer, who's a very famous translational professor. So he's one of the founders of Moderna. That's probably, his, you could argue, his most important thing, given what Moderna did for the world. But even without Moderna, Bob is one of the most storied inventors probably in American history. I don't think that's an exaggeration. And, you know, so he started dozens of companies. And, and if you'd ask him, you know, what would you do? How'd you do it, et cetera, et cetera. He'd always say something that I thought was just like, I was like, oh, okay. Like, like a Hallmark card. I'm like, okay. <laughs> He'd be like, you know, the team is really, really important. And I'd be like, yeah, no, of course. <laughs> like, thanks. Sounds good. <laughs> but now, but now I swear to God, if you, if you could just say, James, give me one line of advice you'd say to a young entrepreneur, I'd be like, the team is really important, you know? <laughs> and that's it because, yeah. you know, I mean, the, when you're starting a company, it, you know, if that hadn't been, if it had been somebody besides Corey in that position, I yeah. don't know what kind of outcome we have because yeah. Corey, Corey just did a fantastic job. So, you know, and if we hadn't had certain investors along the way, I don't know what would have happened. So yeah. it really is a team. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's probably the thing I've learned. This, I'd say maybe there's a second thing I learned, which is that um, the idea better really, really work. So the barcoding definitely works. You know, in science, sometimes there's sort of a level of working that you can get a publication and people are like, okay, cool, sounds good. But, you know, it works a few times, but it kind of works on every other Tuesday and you have to like clap your hands twice and spin around to get it to work or whatever. All right. And then there's the stuff that that works every single time, no matter who's doing it, et cetera. And given all the other pressures and the time pressure and the financial pressure of having a startup, I am now of the very strong opinion that I will never start a company unless it is absolutely one of those technologies that works every time. Mm. With Guide, we were lucky. I didn't know that rule at the time, mm -hmm. right? The Guide technology actually worked, Yeah. right? And we, I was lucky because I didn't know that rule at that time. But those are the two I say team. And if you're like, yeah, I think this could work, I don't think that's worth it. I think it's basically like, you're like, no, this is gonna work. Then you then you jump ship if you have the right team. I think that's that's the way to do it. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's great great descriptions and great great learnings. Maybe segueing a little bit into your experience, you know, in starting Guide, um, and more around the environment that you're in. I mean, you're in, in my opinion, um, you're in a great place. You know, you've got Georgia Tech and Emory, and if you wouldn't mind, just talk a little bit about the. The, that's two universities, so it seems like a fairly unique appointment between two universities. If you could kind of describe that, because I know it's a formal uh, program, which is which is unique and 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 is drawing in you know talent to that ecosystem. But if you could talk a little bit about the environment, the culture, kind of how you're seeing it today, 
And what are the conditions you think are needed so that like if there's a, a next guide or guide 2.0, you know, what, what needs to be true in that ecosystem for it to uh, kind of go further down the road than maybe where a guide got? Yep. So I think that the amount of talent within the Atlanta area is tremendous. In fact, um, I remember when I interviewed here uh, for faculty position, which was in 2015, um, was when I interviewed and signed. I then took a one-year hiatus and, jo- and started in 2016, but I was interviewing in 2015. And I, I, you know, I knew that this department was highly ranked, right? Um, so you know, I, I'm not a big fan of rankings. I think, frankly, that they're a bit silly, but I know people pay attention to them. So I knew that if you opened up US News and World Report at that time, Georgia Tech was somewhere in the top three or top five or whatever. We've now, just this year, we're now number one. Um, Again, I think rankings are silly, but again, we're, we're, we're an established leader. We're in the top X departments. Like with like the kind right. of at or above Johns Hopkins, right? I mean, yeah, we're tied with Hopkins yeah. In, in, yeah. in the magazine. Mm-hmm. Hopkins is great. There's a bunch of other great places. So we're kind of, however you want to rank them, I'd say we're, we're, in a, we're an established department. Yep. And the thing that was really astounding to me when I came down here, we were also an established department at that time, was I was I'd never really heard of it down here, if I'm being blunt. You know, I came down here and I remember I'd gone out to uh, breakfast with a guy named Phil Santangelo, who's my closest collaborator now at Georgia Tech. And um, we're, we're going to this like, you know, greasy breakfast place or whatever. And then we drive over for the proper tour of the university. And I was like, hey, f- hey, Phil, like, what what is this? And he was like, oh, this is the biotech quad. And I was like, biotech quad? I thought it was one building, one building. He's like, no, 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 no. That's da da da. That's da 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 da. And you're sitting around. It's a giant, almost like a, a, a it's a huge part of the campus of a yeah. big campus that's all bio and biotech. Yeah. And I was like, how is it that I'm in biomedicine up in Boston and I'm not really aware of this? Yeah. And what you realize very quickly is that there is a ton of underappreciate like the amount of talent and sort of uh, scientific stuff going on down here is really, really underappreciated. And I think that that's trickled into the biotech ecosystem, sort of the biotech side as well. So I'm quite bullish on the future of biotech in Atlanta because the sort of density of scientific talent and the density of good scientific ideas is really, really high. Mm-hmm. And right now the biotech activity does not match, does not match that. Mm-hmm. And the thing that makes me excited for the future is we're seeing organizations like yours. We're seeing other organizations start to come in and start to sort of appreciate Atlanta. And I do think that it's one of these positive feedback loops where, you know, you get a little bit more activity, you get a few more startups, one of those hits big, that creates more interest and so on and so forth. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but I do think that the trajectory is definitely headed in the right direction. And the last thing I'll say, John, is that I, I can't speak for what the department was like before I got here, but I can tell you that there is a distinct entrepreneurial feel in this department right now, especially amongst the faculty that are sort of the, you know, the younger generation of faculty. There are a lot of faculty members that are assistant or early associate professors that either have a company or are starting a company or plan to start a company soon, it is now becoming sort of standard operating procedure. And it, to my knowledge, it wasn't that case 10 years ago. So I do think things are starting to change and reflect that scientific value and density that I haven't seen reflected before. 
No, that's outstanding. And we notice it from the outside. And that's what's attractive, I think, is you have this, um, you know, lar large amounts of innovation input, you know, where there are more investable faculty, more investable ideas, more investable IP, and the generation of scientists and talent behind that. Of course, to build a great company, you need more than just scientific talent, but there's yeah. a, Atlanta is a place that's drawing talent. It's a growing city. It's a, yeah. it's a live, work, play environment. And so those are some of the early building blocks that are clues that, you know, it has an opportunity in the next decade to really form itself, shape itself, and even differentiate itself uh, versus, uh, and, and be a part of the broader kind of, um, national or global ecosystem um it's it's funny like a, a lot of times there's this uh, it, when you're thinking about cities or regions oftentimes the the headlines are made by the economic development groups that are kind of a look at it as a zero-sum game you know like it's us or them or we're better than them or why not come here because we're cheaper or we're better or you know there's always this and the reality is when you're building an ecosystem especially in biotech it's it's how do you plug each of these nodes into the bigger, you know, grid, if you will, where on, where in you're on par with. I mean, you hadn't heard, you know, you're at MIT, you're in Boston, you hadn't heard about what's going on. It, the the grid wasn't. They're not plugged into the to the grid, and there were reasons for that. Looking retrospectively, um, but I think as you look at the migration of talent, the distribution of talent because of many different factors, but one is universities are trying to become more dynamic. They are trying to make it easier, um, recognizing that to be uh, effective at maintaining their eminence, they gotta be not only good at great basic research and good applied research, but impact. And that impact oftentimes takes the form of you know, a startup or engaging with the outside community or, or other companies as, you know, as those top faculty uh, want to solve problems. And so Atlanta has all those features in, in our, in our opinion. And, but, but I think that you kind of need, there is this, um, there's a, there's a building process that is already underway. I, I can, yeah. I can tell, and I can, I can see what um, maybe we switch gears a little bit. I am curious to see kind of what brought you into the field in the first place. Can you talk a little bit about um, your your early growth? What were did did you always know? You said uh, earlier on you made a quip that you've been spending your entire life, you know, on RNA delivery outside the liver. Did that? So that sounds like you know, as a as a five year old, you were working on this. Can you talk uh, a little bit? About <laughs> no, I need to clarify that then. <laughs> no, but what I, were some of the early inspirations? Yeah. What got you on the path? Yeah. No. So I I grew up um, in a small town uh, in Southwest Ohio. A suburb of Dayton, Ohio. Dayton is where the is known for the Wright brothers, um, and therefore Wright Patterson Air Force Base. It's basically an Air Force town. Um, my dad was a um, music professor and choir uh, conductor. My mom worked for our church, so I grew up. I'd say pretty normal. Um, you know, went to the local state school for undergrad. Um, I will say that I was probably not your most normal kid. Uh, I remember distinctly um, reading, you know, physics textbooks and books about physicists um, for fun starting at the age of like maybe 13, 14 years old. So I think there's a picture my family took. We're on vacation. I'm at the beach and I'm reading like a, um, a book about um, 
physics by Richard Feynman, as an example. So <laughs> I don't know, you know, so I don't know how many kids are like that, but that's kind of how I was growing up. Um, when I went, when I left, well, the, did, but I, did that, was it just you got curious and you and then you'd read one thing and you'd want to learn more about it? Or yeah, like what yeah, got I you mean, into the it, books? I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I still and to this day, I still have a heart for physics. I mean, so um, the thing that always kind of caught me about physics was the first thing that really caught me about physics was the ability to make a prediction. Um, you know, with Newtonian physics, it basically says, OK, if you know how fast the ball is going and how high the ball is, you know where it's going to land. Okay, cool, right? So the ability to make a prediction. And then you start kind of going down the, the wormhole uh, uh, in physics, and and suddenly you start understanding about, you know, uh, like special relativity, which basically says the faster you go through space, the slower you go through time. And then that starts messing around with your head a little bit, just kind of interesting stuff. And so I had, you know... Uh, I was very lucky because I, I took that sort of genuine interest in love and science. And even at that that state, that uh, kind of a normal state school, not a fancy state school, even just a normal state school, I got into a research lab as an undergraduate. So I was a biomedical engineering major, but I was working in a, the material science directorate for the U.S. Air Force, uh, the Air Force Research Labs, for all four years as an undergrad. Hmm. I was making these uh, metallic glass alloys uh, that were going to be allegedly like put up on the spaceships or whatever. So I was a material scientist with a BME major, but I lived in the lab. I, I was like, whenever I wasn't in the class, I, whenever I wasn't in class, I was in the laboratory as a, by myself as like a 19 year old. So I was like hooked on science, hooked on research, quickly figured out that like, I kind of hated all of my classes because they were really, really boring, but quickly real was very fortunate <clears throat> to realize that research was not like my classes. So I would go into the lab, I'd be like, this is incredible, I'm doing this and this and that. And i go to a class about that same topic and I'd be like, this is horrible. Mm -hmm. So I quickly learned that like research is cool and the way that people teach science oftentimes is boring. So it allowed me to stick with science. I then went to graduate school at MIT and Harvard Medical School and that's where I got into RNA. Um, I had to do my PhD in something at MIT and so I did material science which at MIT is very physics-y. Material science can either be very engineering or can be very physics-y. Uh, MIT's is very physics-y. And so there's a lot of, we kind of joke that there's like math and then there's like math. And so I, I was introduced to like real math, <clears throat> you know, got beat up by real math and so on, but was spending again, all of my time in the laboratory. In this time, when I was in the laboratory, I was working on RNA. And that's because when I got into MIT, I had read an article that was talking about siRNA, small interfering RNA. So sort of a, uh, you can argue just as cool, the, the cooler but like less well-known cousin of mRNA. It's a different RNA kind of drug. And the thing about siRNA, I read this article and I remember it saying, yeah, we can turn off any gene that you want. So if gene X causes disease X or gene Y causes disease Y, we can turn off any gene that you want at will. And all we have to do is deliver it into the cell. And I was like, Problem solved, like, <laughs> great. So I'm gonna do RNA delivery. So you get into the lab. The really cool thing about working in Professor Langer's lab, remember this is a famous guy, so he has 150 people in the lab at the time, something like this, a huge lab, was you get to see a lot of stuff. So I was in there as a PhD student and uh, there were like 30 or 40 people all doing RNA delivery. Hmm. And the thing that struck me is number one, they were all way better chemists than I was, way better. So I was getting lapped on the chemistry 
but they were all going after liver delivery. Hmm. So they would all have, they all had this really, really easy assay. So let's say you were a liver person and you wanted to see if your siRNA was delivered to, to the liver. You could basically inject a mouse, wait two days, do a quick like tail nick, take a little bit of blood from the mouse, don't even have to kill the mouse. Like mouse still alive, take a little bit of blood, and then you get your readout like that. But it only told you liver. It told you no other organs. So they're all like making their stuff and they get to test everything in the mouse and it's real fast or whatever. And I'm here trying to do lung and it takes me forever because you don't have that blood assay. So you have to do all this stuff. So they can probably test a hundred times more things than I can. And you realize very quickly that's the whole field. Right. And importantly, a lot of those drugs now are FDA approved. Yeah. So they could find delivery to the liver, but they couldn't find anywhere else. And that 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 was the seed yeah. for like we need a better assay to look outside the liver. That it all started. It all started there. That's very cool. Yeah. One thing I want to touch on, you know, talk about, you know, you're you have a heart for physics. Um, I've talked a little bit about, you know, in, in some of the um, conversations I've had in Atlanta and in and amongst, you know, some of the events that we've been involved in down there. Just this theme around, you know, we talk always about biotech, but now there's this evolving tech bio, you know, physics based biology, material science, all those kinds of things. I, I wonder if that is an area given, again, kind of this simplistic, you know, you've got the engineering strength of Georgia Tech and then you've got the strength around medicine and immunology and uh, of Emory. And those are just two institutions of many. But if yep. we're simplifying here, you know, is there a differentiable characteristic about the future of the Atlanta ecosystem that that trends more toward tech bio? And another piece of this, too, is, you know, there's already an underpinning in Atlanta around tech. I mean, you've got yeah, tech, Microsoft, yeah. you know, you've got Oracle, you've got, you know, this yeah. already a, 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 an earlier generation of entrepreneurs all focused on yeah. tech. And that's converging, obviously, into um life sciences as well. I just wonder yeah. what your take on if that's a differentiating characteristic potentially for Atlanta as it's, you know, as it presents to the overall biotech grid. Oh yeah, for sure. So one tech tech, like tech tech has already arrived in Atlanta. That's mm -hmm. crystal clear. Yeah. So, you know, biotech is still needing to grow, but in terms of tech tech, like we're already here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I think that, I think you're completely on point. I think that, um, I also think that one of the, one of the things I enjoy about the Georgia Tech Emory Atlanta ecosystem is the depth here. I think is what again what really surprised me when I first got down here was just how much how much good science there was down here. So when you talk about tech bio instead of biotech, yeah, there's a ton of stuff down here. You know, because we we have a lot of frankly great scientists between Georgia Tech Emory as you mentioned, you know, some of the others like GSU uh, and uh, many of the other med schools and so on. So I think, yeah, so long story short, I agree. Um, it'll be interesting to see how those things kind of play out. Um, in, in my perhaps uneducated opinion, but I'll still say it is, is that whether it's biotech or tech bio, um, I think that whichever one becomes stronger will probably help the other. So I'm really hoping that, I think my experience suggests that a lot of early startup stuff is often a positive feedback loop. So the you know more success leads to more success leads to more success. So as a city, I think whatever comes first um, will be great for whatever comes second. You know, one of the things you mentioned earlier on was you know you love being in the lab. You loved you know as a 19 year old, you're hanging out in the lab and you're spending all your time there. 
um, and you you enjoyed that part, and then you'd go to class the next day, and it was it was very boring. Mm. I wonder were there features or elements of those experiences that you've taken with you now um, in your role as educator? So you know you are uh, you're wearing a lot of hats, but one of them is you know you're you're a, you're a teacher, you're you're a professor. Um, can you talk a little bit about? you know, some of the things you learned from your own experience that maybe you're applying in a different way that's attracting the quarries of the world to come and study under your, your mentorship. Yeah. So I'd say a few things. There's like the classroom stuff and there's also the, like the mentoring of our PhD students and so on. I'd say there's some common themes there, you know, um, one thing I'd say is on, on the classroom front, I think it is absolutely critical to make sure that the students understand how exciting this stuff is. So I don't mean going around and clowning around and doing, you know, silly demonstrations or whatever, but but really being clear that when we're talking about the subtle differences in biochemical modifications on an siRNA, that you're talking about things that uh, lead to $10 billion acquisitions and lead to platform technologies that will probably um, eventually um, uh, result in 10 plus FDA approved drugs that will cure many, many diseases. And, and, and you can understand not the whole story, but a really important part of that story if you only understand what the two prime position on an RNA can be if you design it the right way and how that differs from the two prime position naturally. So you go from, okay, here's what an RNA structure looks like, but you don't say, now memorize this and draw it back to me. Mm -hmm. You say, tell me why this thing leads to uh, a Medco acquisition by Novartis. <laughs> and that story is interesting. The structure yeah. is boring, but yeah. the story is interesting. So it's, it's very story-based, and yeah. you can get a lot of the sort of fine scientific details embedded in their heads more easily if you're telling it within a story, just like anything else, yeah. right? I think we're all bombarded with facts and figures all the time, but stories tend to stick. On the mentorship side within the lab, it is incredibly important. I would argue the most important trait in our lab um, is that the students do what they want to do. So I, I, a student will come into the lab, I will not say you're assigned to you know, Project X. We will have a series of conversations where they find their own way to Project X. Mm -hmm. And then I say, okay, like this is the thing that you love, now you need to get after it. And so our lab has been very, very productive. We've had a number of alumni go into venture. We've had several star companies. We've had them go into hottest biotechs around. We've had, we, we've had a lot, a lot of our alumni have just gone on to very cool jobs, like out the gate from our lab. And that is because they've been very, very productive in the lab. And they will attest that I have never yelled at a single person in my lab ever. I've never given like a, you need to do this to anybody in my lab. Everybody in my, every my lab is very, very self-driven. And I view my role as basically helping them find what they really, really enjoy, because if they're doing what they really like, they're going to like kick the door down. But if they're not doing what they like, then you can't fake it for five years yeah. and you're going to get beat out by everybody who, who does like it. So uh, we kind of think of it as fit in the lab more than anything else. Sure. And that's how we think about it. 
Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I'm my, my closing question, James, and it's been a wonderful conversation. And uh, back to your point around story, what a great story. Um, what's next in the story? What, what do you see kind of as your vision for, I guess, broadly for the field and, you know, your life's work, you know, around, you know, delivering RNA outside the liver? What, what do you think is going to be the key breakthrough in the next decade um, or just any version of what you think will be transformative out there in the future? Yeah. So I'll say this, but I'm not a blue sky person. So, you know, um, and despite that, I'm actually very optimistic. So those for the people who know me really well, they know that that's not common. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I'll kind of answer this by actually going back to the liver. So we can, as a field, deliver siRNAs, things called ASOs and mRNA to the liver already. And I do not think it's an exaggeration when I say that we're talking about 10 plus FDA approved products out of that. And honestly, probably more. So um, you are over the course of the next, whatever, 10, 15 years within the liver, you're talking about curing or treating a dozen, 15 diseases that were not treatable beforehand. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a significant. Yes contribution. Mm -hmm. If you can deliver to one tissue, we'll call it 15 diseases, right? A few years ago, I was not as optimistic as I am now, but I'm very optimistic that over the next few years, I'm not saying FDA approvals, there's no way to predict that kind of stuff, but a reasonable shot in humans of success, a reasonable shot of humans in success is coming for the lung, for hematopoietic stem cells, for B cells, for T cells, for natural killer cells, other cells in the immune system. And the, the reason why I get so jazzed up about that is, again, even if we only got one of those, yeah. we're talking 10 to 15 diseases. And I do not think it is unrealistic to say that in 10 years, there are clinical trials that have a reasonable chance of success, of course, knock on wood, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. in four or five different cell types. I don't think that's unreasonable. So, and again, a few years ago, never would have said that. But we've seen stuff in our lab. Um, I've seen other stuff. Uh, people in the field have seen stuff. I think the next wave is coming, and I, honest to God, think it's going to be several cell types. Well, I mean, I'm a big believer that we are in the biocentury, and uh, we're in the early innings here, and it's just really inspiring to hear, you know, about the work you know you've uh, been um, chipping away at for a long time, and. Uh, like you, I'm optimistic about some of the breakthroughs upcoming, and um, it's an honor to speak with you. Uh, just learning about, you know, what you have in mind for being able to to do just that, and uh, look forward to continuing to, you know, build our friendship with you and learning more about ways that um, we can collaborate and interact. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate it. It was really lovely speaking with you, and you know, you you already know I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing, and. I think what you're doing is also very important, both for the city and the region. So thank you for taking the time. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye. 